0: All right, First Samuel. First Samuel. We're going to be in chapter two, verses eleven through thirty. Or yeah, through thirty-six this morning. If you've been enjoying First Samuel, and um, I hope you have. It's a. It's a Phenomenal book, and it is going to take us on an epic journey over the next year or so, as we are introduced to numerous characters. And we have been introduced to some really compelling characters, and seen some dramatic things taking place already. We've seen Elkanah and his wife Hannah their struggle to have a baby, and um, what was that? For? And um, Lord blessing them, and. God giving them a child, and Samuel and coming into the story, and Eli the priest, and Samuel serving in the temple, uh, and then Hannah makes this magnificent prayer in chapter two. Well, here is the problem: is that it's going to take a downward turn now. The story is going to get a little dark, and it's going to get a little difficult in verse eleven of chapter two. So, if you've just been really thrilled about what the Lord is doing in first Samuel as we get to this passage we're going to hit a road bump in it and it's going to have a little bit sober a little bit more sober of a tone as we walk through this passage than kind of the magnificent prayer we looked at last week and the glorious answer to prayer the previous week so here's the situation in Samuel's day Samuel just born earlier we saw and now, here's a situation. If you, if you remember back to the book of Judges, which comes shortly before 1 Samuel and kind of sets the, the scene for the book of 1 Samuel, at the end of the book of Judges, and really throughout the book of Judges, you have this repeated saying, and it says this in Judges 21-25, "...in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes." So in those days, in Israel, it's like the wild, wild west of the ancient Near East. It's just ugly. And if you read through Judges, especially the last few chapters of Judges, you realize it is brutal there. It is awful. Death, destruction, robbery, all kinds of stuff just going throughout the country. There's no king, there's no order, there's no law. And then, if you peek forward a little bit in 1 Samuel to the beginning of chapter 3, where we'll be at next week, here's what it says there. No king, remember. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. So God, there's no prophet who speaks God's word to God's people. There's no king. There's no prophet. God is not speaking to his people. There's chaos and disorder in the land. It is a bleak, hard setting at the beginning of 1 Samuel. But in the first few chapters, we're at least introduced to somebody who seems like they're in the right place, and it's this guy named Eli. He is a priest. So we may not have prophets who are speaking God's word, we may not have kings who are ruling over God's people, but there is a priest at least. Well, that's not going to turn out so well here, as we'll see. There's no king, no consistent word from God, but at least there are priests, right? right. well unfortunately these three things prophets priests and kings are the three offices over the israelite people in the old testament Um, prophets had a job had a role from god and they were to speak god's word to god's people god would reveal himself to a prophet and they in turn would speak what god had said to them to the people the king was supposed to rule over God's people. Israel had not had a king yet; that they've been promised one. And even at the end of Hannah's prayer, there's this little direction towards towards a king. Kings were to rule over God's people in line with God's law. That's what the job of kings is, is to enforce and to make sure that God's people are living in accord with God's law. And the third office in the Old Testament was the priest, which we've seen in 1 Samuel. And you've seen, if you've been reading through the whole Bible to this point, you've seen priests in abundance. Priests would lead God's people to worship God rightly. So you had these three offices, these three roles that led God's people in different ways. Prophets spoke God's word to people. Kings ruled over God's people in accord with God's laws. And priests led God's people to worship God rightly. And in this day, 1 Samuel 2, there are no kings, and there's no prophets. There's only priests, and we're going to see that that doesn't go so well. So, before we dip in there, let me just back out for just a second again, and um, let me talk about parenting 101. Um, Here's one thing they tell you, and uh, one thing that we all probably... Try hard not to do is they say don't compare your children to one another right like don't say like why can't you be like your younger brother or your older brother um, that's really really hard to do because your kids are always together and they're always doing things together and you're always kind of noticing how they do things differently and we talk all the time about how our kids are different from each other it'd be very boring if our kids were all clones of each other we're always doing this internally kind of clenching our teeth trying not to damage our kids by what we say in comparison. And, but you can't help but do it. Like You are comparing your children to each other in some ways, not necessarily all bad ways. Um, I have one sister who's about a year and a half younger than me. In school, I did fairly well academically. And my sister, who was two grades behind me, walked into each class with an expectation from the teachers. The teachers expected, oh, you're a Montague. Josh did pretty good in history class, so you should too. And my sister just hated that. She actually did all right in school too, but she just hated that comparison to me. And I, I got to set the bar because I went first. And some of you older siblings maybe went first and set the bar a little bit lower, right, for your um, later one. Like, they, oh, you're a, well, this is going to be a rough year for us, isn't it? <laughs> That's kind of how it happens. We're, kids are compared to each other all the time. My sister was much more of a, uh, a social butterfly, uh, me, when it comes to social like parties and things like that, not not so much. It's not really my jam. Um, and sometimes I could feel people say, like, you're not really like your sister. You're kind of just like hanging out with Steve on Friday nights and playing board games and listening to Def Leppard. Um, like, <laughs> that's very different. Um, and so people would compare us in that aspect and still do. Well, in this text, we're going to get a comparison. Comparison. Two brothers named Hophni and Phineas versus another, um, another young boy that we are introduced to. The brothers are older, Hophni and Phinehas, they're adults at this time. Samuel is a young boy at this point in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Hophni and Phinehas, they're bad. They're really, really bad, as you're going to see. In fact, the NIV uses the term scoundrels, which I love to describe them. Samuel, he's, he's really good. He's a great kid in this passage that you'll see. Hophni and Phineas. Um, one commentator, uh, Andrew Reed, says that they are unrestrained thugs. That's the description of these two guys. And as you read Samuel, who is described repeatedly throughout this passage, you'll see that I mean Samuel. To be honest, he's as pure and innocent as the driven snow. There is nothing wrong with Samuel. He's he's the good kid in this one. Hophni and Phineas are just awful, awful priests, and Samuel is a good priest. He's growing into that role. He wears an ephod, the mark of a priest, and he's a good priest, especially compared to Hophni and Phinehas. Now, there is a way to read this passage as a treatise on parenting. And there is some not so subtle warnings in this passage to not be like Father Eli was to his sons. But this passage, I think, is about much, much more than how not to have rebellious sons. If we viewed this passage simply as a parenting passage, the takeaway is then don't be a bad father like Eli. But then the reverse of that would be, like, there's a good boy, Samuel. So raise your kid like Samuel. Which then you go back and you look at chapter 1, verse 24 and to find out, okay, what do I got to do to produce good sons? And when Hannah had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull an ephah of flour and a skin of wine. She brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli. So if you want to have a good son according to this logic, then you know, slaughter some bulls and give your son to work at the tabernacle. That's how to raise a good son. How are you guys doing? (laughs) So, we need to be careful in making this a treatise on parenting. It's a little problematic to go in that direction. And as we'll see, this passage is about so much more than how to raise boys. Spoiler alert, it will point us to an even greater son who will come later than Samuel. Samuel. So let's start in the passage. I'm going to read this in three different sections rather than all through, and we're going to look at these in three different scenes. Three different scenes, and the, you'll see how they're kind of organized as we go through them. First Samuel, chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 11 and go to verse 19 in this first scene. Here we go. Then, Elkanah. Remember him? He's the dad. Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy, Samuel, ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. All right, good. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priest with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with while well, the meat was still, uh, was still boiling with a three-pronged, and you'll have to imagine a third prong on this one, okay? With a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan, just like that, I'm sure, or kettle, or cauldron, or pot, All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. That's Hophni and Phinehas, who will be named later. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. On the other hand, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe. And take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. So there's scene one. You have Elkanah introduced again, reintroduced. Hannah's mentioned at the back end there and there's Samuel at the front and the back and they're doing well. They are a noble family serving the Lord rightly. The boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. He grows up as a young priest figure um, serving in the, the the tabernacle there in shiloh and doing good things in contrast in the middle there you have the sons of eli eli's worthless family elkanah has a noble family at this point and in contrast eli has a worthless family look at how it just kind of the the editor author of 1 Samuel puts verses together to show this contrast verse 11 the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest now the sons of Eli were worthless men they did not know the Lord and you just hear that like you got very different groups of people happening here Samuel doing well Hophni and Phinehas scoundrels verse 18 or sorry verse 17 Still talking about the the two boys of Eli. The sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. He's a priest, then, if he has that ephod on. He's serving as a priest in a priestly role and ministering before the Lord. Well, the other guys are treating the offering of the Lord with contempt. So, you see that comparison there in this first scene. That comparison is going to be throughout this whole passage as we move forward. And even into chapter 3 and 4, Samuel will be contrasted with these two brothers, Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli. If you remember, the story comes right after Hannah has, has prayed this poetic, beautiful, powerful prayer. And she said things like, those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, She says things like, the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, and maybe when you hear that in 2 Samuel 2, you're thinking about pagan nations who are sacrificing children around them, all that kind of evil stuff that's going out there, and then you turn into this next section, where's the evil at? Where is the wicked at? It's with the priests' own sons. They're worthless, the ESV says. It's used to describe these two guys. That word worthless is actually also used by Hannah when she defends herself from Eli's accusation in chapter 1. He calls her a drunkard, and she says, please don't regard me as worthless in verse 16 of chapter 1. And then as you turn the page to chapter 2, it's Eli's own sons who are worthless. Here's the ultimate problem with Hophni and Phinehas, who have not yet been named but will be soon. Verse 12, they did not know the Lord. And they're serving as priests for God's people. Their role is to lead God's people to God in sacrifice, in worship, in prayer, and they don't even know the Lord. The priests who should be leading people to God did not even know the Lord, and it leads to all sorts of abusive, sinful behavior. There was a provision in the law for priests to have some of the meat when someone brought a sacrifice. There were certain parts of the animal that they would give to the priest. But here, that has gone terribly wrong. And as someone is boiling their meat after the sacrifice, they have slaughtered the animal And uh, if it's a cow, it's probably a bigger pot than this one, I hope. But they've got something going in there, and the priest would send his servant, or maybe he would go himself, Hophni and Phinehas would go around, and they would just start taking the choices cut. And you can imagine them standing over that pot looking like, oh, there it is, there's the fillet, there's the tenderloin, got it. And they would take it and eat it themselves. For the average Israelite, meat would not have been a daily part of their diet. It was a special treat. You had meat at sacrificial times, holidays. For Hophni and Phinehas, because they were abusing their power and their position, meat was regularly on the table. The buffet came to them every time someone came to worship. They got meat. If you go to most poorer agrarian societies today, People will subsist on beans and root vegetables and whatever else they can grow. Meat is a delicacy that maybe is eaten once a week among some folks that I've been with in Africa. And I think it would have been similar in this day. You just don't have the production capacity that we do for meat. But here, the priests have found out how to get meat every day. The priests are selfishly stealing from the people. The shepherds are robbing their own sheep here. Walking around, all these little family barbecues, and saying, I'm going to take that piece. I'm going to take that piece. I'm going to take that piece. Can you imagine doing that? Like You're on your deck just having a good barbecue, and uh, you a know, pastor comes around and says, hey, uh, hmm, that one looks good. I'm going to take that, and I'll see you guys later. Like, like that's not right. That is wrong, Nate. Come on, all right? I'm thankful that you don't do that. I'm thankful that you don't do that. In fact, yeah. Well, here's, here's the other piece of it. If you read that story in 12 through 17, the fat portion of the meat um, in, the, in the law, according to how you would do sacrifices in this day, the fat part of the portion of the meat was to be given to God and burned as a sacrifice to God. So the, the very heart of that sacrifice was the fat was given to God. And in those days and uh, in other parts of the world, in this day, the fat is considered the delicacy. That's, and I think this is absolutely true. The fat is where the flavor is. Like, that's the part you really want. It's like delicious and it's got all that flavor. And if you have meat that doesn't have any fat in it, it's just kind of like, meh, kind of, you might as well eat a vegetable. <laughs> Almost. We may think it's gross that, but most cultures understand that the flavor is in the fat. Lean meat is boring. You go to the Philippines, eat a lot of pork there and it's just they do not carve out the fat on that one and if you do when you're eating it everybody's going like what in the world is that guy doing here the fat is supposed to be given to god because it's the best flavor it's the best part of the animal to eat and what's the priest doing here threatening violence if the fat the best part of the meat is not given to the priest Genesis forty-five eighteen. God promises, "You will eat the fat of the land." There's all kinds of references in the Bible to the glory of fat in meat. Um, and here, the priests Hophni and Phineas are abusing their power for their own material gain. Abusing their power for their own material gain. I, I can, I've thought of one time that I have done this, um, and it happens in the end of October when my kids were little. Um, they would you know dress up and go get candy from strangers, which is fun, and then bring that buckets or bags of candy home and I tried to institute what I called a candy tax. I wanted to teach my children that when you earn something, someone is going to take a good chunk of that, and you don 't have a choice it 's just the way things go in life and they needed to understand that as three-year-olds and so I would have them spread out their candy and I would say I now get to choose 10% of your candy we're not going to do any kind of graduated or you know wealth-based anything like that there's no capital gains or anything like that we're just going to do a straight 10% tax because it's going to be simple and um, uh, it was not well received in general Um, in fact it, it turned that they thought it was a joke um, apparently, three year olds don't understand all that sort of thing. Um, it, you know, and I, it was kind of a joke, and I was having fun with it, and I still do um, with folks. But, um, but it's, it, you know, that kind of thing is an abuse of power. If I really was doing that, really enforcing that, it's an abuse of power for my own gain. And that's what Hophni and Phineas are doing here. But so much worse than taking the Snickers and the Reese's peanut butter cups. They treated the offering of the Lord with contempt in verse 17 people are here to worship the god of the universe to sacrifice to him to sing to him and they're treating that with contempt it's an opportunity for their gain the corruption doesn't come from israel's pagan wicked neighbors like the canaanites or the philistines it comes from within the call is from within the house the enemies of god are inside his house They're leading his people. They're treating the offering with contempt. And it stems from not knowing the Lord. They don't know the Lord. If you know the Lord, you treat the sacrifice he provides with joyful reverence. You have peace with God through this sacrifice. What should have been an expression of thankfulness as people are gathered around celebrating a meal after remembering how their God forgives and brings them to himself through sacrifice should have been a time of thankfulness and gratitude and feasting. And instead, it's a time for the priests to take from the people. But in contrast, this little glimmer of hope, in contrast, a boy clothed with a linen ephod made by his mother a robe, made with, a robe made by his mother with painstaking regularity every year to coincide with the family's pilgrimage to Shiloh for sacrifice and worship. So you have the bad priests, but then there's Samuel. Samuel, this kind of shining star in the midst of an ugly situation. Scene 2, verse 20 to 26. 20 to 26. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord, but Eli was very old. And he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel. You know, he heard about the meat thing. He probably participated in that in some way. Maybe he tried to, to, you know, kind of turn turn a blind eye, but he had to know that too. But here, there's something different happening. How they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord, and also with man. You see the contrast there again, right? Elkanah's family is growing. I mean, Hannah has five more kids, and uh, Samuel grows in favor with the Lord and man. Contrast, Eli was very old. He's he's on the way down here. Um, And that will happen throughout Samuel. His characters will rise and fall and rise and fall. It will happen to many, many people, as we will see. See the contrast again. Verse 25, the sons would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. We'll get to that in a second. Verse 26 then, now the young man, by contrast, Samuel, continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. So, the, the boy's wickedness is much more than taking some meat out of the pot here, right? They're doing horrible things. In many cultures of that day, in a temple around, uh, you know, that was worshiping a a Philistine god or a Canaanite god, there would be temple prostitutes at at the doorway to the temple, and it would be part of the ritual worship that you would engage with these prostitutes as you gave your sacrifices. These women here were not that. They were serving the Lord. They were there to serve the Lord in the place where he was to be worshiped. And the priests are using their power to take advantage of them, to sleep with them, sexual sin, abuse of their position for sexual relationships. It's it's gross. What's supposed to be this beautiful, holy, pure worship of God is turned into something that looks like their neighbor's sin. And Eli then says, "What are you doing?" What are you you doing? Now, notice here that Eli says it at this point. And I I don't want to read too much into this, but he doesn't say that earlier. Right? Eli just kind of like, all of a sudden, like, he starts getting bad reports. He has to deal with the flack, and he's like, now I'm going to go talk to the boys. I'm not going to talk to the boys when they're stealing other people's meat, but now that I got to deal with it, now I'm going to go try to get them straightened out. I have the responsibility of managing, you know, 10, 12 guys at work. um, And, uh, it just moved from 10 to 12. It's not that I couldn't remember. It moved from 10 to 12, so that's why. Um, that might have sounded bad if I couldn't name the number there. But I have this responsibility, and uh, there's, there's kind of like, sometimes you just want to just let things go as a manager if, if it doesn't really cause that many problems to you. And then when it causes problem to you because somebody else is coming after you, you're like, all right, now i got to go talk to him. right? Um, tempted to do that. I try not to do that. But that's what happens, it seems like, here with Eli. He's just a lazy father a lazy father and kind of selfish in his in the end now i've got to deal with this i'm getting i'm getting come on guys what are you doing it's reflecting bad on me and then the end of it eli asks, if someone sins against the lord who can intercede for him now that question has an answer that perhaps eli doesn't know And you see at the end of verse 25, the hard statement there. It was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Their sin was so bad at this point, they were treating the offering of the Lord with contempt. They did not know the Lord that God said, that's it. That's it. I'm going to remove my hand from them, as Romans 1 says, and give them over to the consequences of their sin. It's not an easy text, is it? It's a hard, hard thing to think about. I think the author of Hebrews captures some of this when he writes in Hebrews 6, "...for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God in their own harm and holding Him up to contempt." Hophni and Phinehas treated the offering of the Lord with contempt, and they're so rebellious that God gives them over to their sin. One author says this, Hophni and Phinehas experienced the fate of men who deliberately sin against the light, who love their lusts so well that nothing will induce them to fight against them. They were so hardened that repentance became impossible, and it was necessary for them to undergo the full retribution for their wickedness. And over that stands Eli's haunting question, if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? It's a dark, haunting passage, isn't it? The author of Hebrews also says then, today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts. And I would present that to you as a call on our lives right now. If we hear God's voice, don't harden our hearts like this it's a dark situation but in the darkness once again there's a light a glimmer of hope because there's a young priest among a priesthood that's generally wicked verse 26 the boy samuel grew both in stature and in favor with the lord and with the people later on in the gospel of luke that phrase in some form will be used to describe john the baptist and then later on in luke chapter 2 verse 40 it will be used to describe jesus of nazareth there's a boy. There's hope. There's a child. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. There is someone here. Scene 3 now got to move a little quicker, I think. There came a man of God, which is never good in the Old Testament. There came a man of God to Eli and said to him, "'Thus the Lord has said, "'Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father "'when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? "'Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel "'to be my priest, to go up to my altar, "'to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? "'I gave to the house of your father all my offerings.'" By fire from the people of Israel. You're in a privileged place, Eli. You get to lead God's people to worship the God of creation. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves with the choicest parts of every offering of my people? Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever, in case you didn't hear it the first time. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. Ugh, man, you don't, you don't want a man of God to show up on your doorstep in the Old Testament because that, man, that's not good news here. But there is good news in the next verse. Listen, listen. Capture this verse and hold on tight to this verse in this passage because the next verse is so beautiful and so good and so hopeful in this dark, dark prophecy. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind and i will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever and everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say please put me in one of the priest's places that i may eat a morsel of bread so the priests who are taking food from people Will at some point, their descendants will be longing to be priests so that they can just have a morsel of bread. Judgment comes to Eli's family, but there's a promise of a faithful priest, verse 35. And that's what you see in this passage. You need a better priest. Eli and his sons are worthless. They're worthless. They are not doing what the priests are supposed to do, leading God's people to him. But you also see in, in the book of Samuel, we'll see this more and more, that we need a better king too. We don't just need a priest, we need a king. There's no king in the land, remember? And then you need a better prophet because if you go on to verse 1 of chapter 3, the word of the Lord is rare in those days. So priest, king, prophet, like it's, we just need better ones of every one of those. Well, the man of God makes that prophecy. In chapter 4, sorry to steal a little bit of the surprise here, but Hophni and Phinehas will die. And then Eli will die. Samuel will become a leader in Israel. Some level of a faithful priest, a replacement for, uh, for, for the, the bad priests here. Later on in the book, 85 of Eli's descendants will be slaughtered by a guy named Doeg the Edomite. But his line will continue a little bit. Somebody survives. In 1 Kings chapter 2, Eli's final descendant, Abiathar dies and is replaced by somebody who's not in his lineage, Zadok. Eli's line comes to an end. But there's a final replacement. Jesus becomes the great high priest and puts an end to the line of high priests. There's no need for high priests now because Jesus is our eternal high priest told you at the beginning what the initial situation was in samuel's day it was rough it was rough no king no priest no prophet no good priest chapter 3 verse 20 here's what happens then and all israel as samuel rises knew that samuel was established as a prophet of the lord there is the word of the lord now in israel and the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. I mean, just this redundancy in that passage to make, let you know that the word of Samuel, which is the word of the Lord, came to all of Israel. So, just a few short verses later in this chapter, we seem to have our prophet. I mean, check that one off the list. Okay, what about a king? Well, no king yet. No king yet. It's hoped for in Hannah's prayer, but Saul won't arrive until chapter 9, and he's, he's miserable. And then we get David and has some promise and he's he does some really good stuff but not perfect right we seem to have our king though in david maybe maybe but then it all goes horribly wrong if you flip forward to first samuel chapter 8 verses 1 and 2 when samuel became old just like eli he made his sons judges over israel the name of his firstborn was joel and the name of the second abijah they were judges in beersheba yet and this is the tragic part His sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Samuel's line wound up the same way as Eli's line. The judges are wicked as well. And all through through these initial books of the Bible, there's these glimpses of faithful, righteous people. But one of two things creates a problem. Either these faithful, righteous people are kind of a mixed bag. There's some righteousness, but there's also a lot of sin. So Abraham, Jacob, Judah, Moses, Samson, Saul, David, Solomon. You're like, yeah, there's some really good stuff about those guys, but there's also the Bathsheba issue or something parallel to that in everyone's life. So there's either kind of this mixed bag. They're not really that righteous. They're not perfectly righteous. Or the other problem is they die. They die. So you get somebody good like Joseph or Joshua or Samuel here and then they're not permanent. They die and then usually somebody comes in who's a lot worse. And throughout the first chapters of the book, first books of the Bible, as you get to 1 Samuel and as you move into the books of Kings, you're asking this Will God ever fulfill his promises that he made to Adam and Eve, that he made to Abraham? Will God fulfill these promises? Will there ever be a faithful priest and king and prophet who will fully obey God and serve eternally? You ache for that in the opening chapters of 1 Samuel. And here's the answer. And you get this in a glimpse with the descriptions of Samuel here. That despite ongoing rebellion and evil, God is raising up a much greater and everlasting prophet, priest, and king. Yes, he's raising up Samuel, but Samuel dies. Yes, later on, Zadok replaces Eli's line, but Zadok dies too. Yes, there's David as king, but David has some issues, and he dies. But eventually... There's Jesus, perfectly righteous and eternal. We need a faithful, eternal priest. We need someone who can intercede between God and us. And in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, which I kept going back to over and over this week, Jesus is the faithful high priest and Jesus is the eternal high priest. We need a faithful, eternal king or judge. Earthly rulers may do good, but they are not an eternal, ultimate hope. Even Samuel, the great judge here, or David, the great king, failed or died, and we need a better leader. Kings protect and deliver from enemies, and Jesus is described as the king of kings, the eternal one on the throne in the book of Revelation. He's the faithful king, the eternal king that we need. We need a faithful prophet. We need an eternal prophet. We need the word of God. We can only know God as he reveals himself to us. And he has done this through creation, through his written word, the scriptures. But Jesus is the word of God. He's a faithful prophet. He is the word of God. He's the eternal prophet who speaks God's word and shows God to his people. And So even though we're not ancient Israel's Israelites, we still long for these things. We long for a king. You can see that in the political idolatry of our age, both in the church and outside of the church. We long for a king, usually one who operates with our priorities. We long for a priest. You see this in all the various forms of spirituality, from just I'm spiritual to neo-paganism to occult practices to all kinds of dabbling in different religions. We long for a priest who will lead us to God. We want to know the divine. We long for a priest, usually on our terms, though. We long for a prophet, for a prophetic word. We go to prophets for self-help and therapy and even pseudo-prophets out there. We want someone to guide us in the right way. We want to know the right way, and the right way is usually defined by our prosperity and success and power. We want a prophet who will tell us that on our terms. We want a king. We want a priest. We want a prophet. And in Jesus, we have a better king. We have a better prophet. We have a better priest. And we have one who is eternal. Praise God praise God. Folks, don't take this lightly. God himself has entered our world to serve as our prophet, priest, and king. If you want joy, this is where it's found. If you want hope, this is where it's found. If you want peace, it's found in Jesus. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer to what we long for. You want a prophet? You want guidance in your life? Jesus fulfills that. You want a king? You want leadership? Jesus fulfills that. You want a priest? You want access to the divine, to God? Jesus fulfills that. Everything we need is fulfilled in our great prophet, priest, and king, Jesus. The heart of this passage in Scripture is a pointer to Jesus. It stirs up a longing for something better because there are a bunch of failures in 1 Samuel, and there's a bunch of failures here in this room. This passage should make you love and worship Jesus jesus even more points you forward watch you i gotta see does this ever get better and then praise god jesus mm-hmm. praise god jesus well before i finish and i know i'm probably a little over time here I, I don't think it's fair to finish without addressing the sadness of this passage because you do have a neglectful father with sons who are described as scoundrels and some of us find ourselves in that description. We may have parented with all the right tactics, or we may have been absentee parents, or worse, but we see our kids far from the Lord, and we're grieved by that. And then we hear in verse 25 that it was the will of the Lord to put them to death, and were broken, frightened, scared. The pages of Scripture are filled with stories of rebellious sons. Adam, Cain, Jacob. Hophni and phineas I mean, just a grab bag of pick your king from Israel and Judah. Israel itself is described as a rebellious son. Even Samuel's sons, as we saw, rebel. But in scriptures, there are also faithful sons. Abel, Isaac, Joseph, Samuel. The good news, the good news here, is that the greatest son can redeem unfaithful sons and daughters. The greatest son, Jesus, can redeem unfaithful sons and daughters. Memorize that and camp on that. And we see this throughout Scripture. Judah is a son who is redeemed. Israel is a son who is redeemed. Some of the kings are redeemed. And most poignantly, in a parable told by the perfect son who which depicts a wayward prodigal son who ignores and rejects his father, squanders his life, but then has an awakening and returns to his father. And in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells the story. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe. You could do a whole, I could do a whole sermon on robes kind of want to but i'm not going to put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again he was lost and is found and they began to celebrate oh may we have that story shown and seen and experienced in our church and in our families The good news is that the greatest son can redeem unfaithful sons and daughters. If you need proof, turn your eyes back on yourself. He redeemed your wicked self, and he can redeem your children. There are amazing stories of redemption. Every one of us who know Christ as Savior is an amazing story of redemption. Those who were lost are now found. God can redeem your children. Grieve, yes, if your children are far from God. Warn them, speak clearly about the danger of rejecting and rebelling against God, but have hope. Have hope when you pray for them, and pray for them, and pray for them, and pray for them. And may God continue to fill us with stories of redemption. May we hear many stories of His redemptive work in our children. Let's pray. Father, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned each of us to our own way. But the greater Son has taken the punishment that we deserved for that upon Himself. His blood brings us forgiveness and reunites us to the Father. So Father, we thank You that Jesus the Son is the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect king, the eternal prophet, priest, and king, and our Savior. May it lift our hearts to hope in you, even when we see evil and rebellion around us. In your precious Son's name, in your perfect Son's name, we pray.